You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Your average Android application is just as easy to reverse engineer as my game was in the late 80s. Because certain aspects of what software is and how it works just simply haven't changed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Paul Dant. He's Senior Director of Cybersecurity Research at Illumio. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories here this week, we have a bit of follow-up. Do you want to start us off there? Yeah, Dave. Anthony sent me a message on LinkedIn about a new scam vector that I have not heard of before. Hmm. Uh, And he said he saw this message on Nextdoor. Uh, Do you know what Nextdoor is? Yes, Nextdoor is how you can tell which of your neighbors are racist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. I, I, had, I, I had a Nextdoor account. I shut right. it down. I just yes. got so sick of listening to everybody complaining about every single thing that was going on in the neighborhood. Because right. I live close to Merriweather. Oh, yes, and yes. Merriweather Post Pavilion, for people who don't live in Columbia, is a uh, Frank Gehry-designed concert pavilion. Yes. It's beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. big bands play there. I mean, like, big mm-hmm. names. Uh, and uh, one of my favorite stories is Slayer was playing there one night, and they they went past the 11 o'clock deadline, and my wife was calling them, and I was like, you're embarrassing me in front of Slayer. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, so I, I couldn't take that anymore, all the complaining uh, mm. So I, I that's really what I think it is. I mean, it, it does have other neighborhood value, and if you're if you're into that, but I have a real disdain for social media anyway, mm-hmm. and I didn't have a real need to be on next door, so I left it. But Anthony did not. Anthony's still on, and yep. came across this great uh, this great note from uh, from one of his neighbors. It said, "Yesterday, I received a call saying they were from Xfinity and they were upgrading internet from 4G to 5G." Hmm. Okay. Now, initially, Dave, that would be a red flag to me, but T-Mobile has 5G internet service that you can have at your house. Right. So I don't know how much of a red flag it is. This makes sense. This is a good ploy right okay. off the bat. Yeah. Um, it's not how Comcast works, but you, I mean, I only know that because I'm a nerd. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> Go so on. The guy, goes, uh, the guy on the phone goes on to say that they were having trouble with this person's router. Uh, I asked if I should take it in to be exchanged, but they said, no, they can fix it through my computer. Good news. Yes. (laughs) They had me download TeamViewer, which is a a legit application for support desk. It lets somebody take uh, control of your your computer. And then after a couple minutes, said the supervisor would call to help. The next call came from a different number. And that person said that a technician would call to run a test. The next call came from yet another number. And he said he was from the Xfinity billing department and needed me to log into my bank so he could deposit a rebate of $200. Ooh. All capitals, it says here. Big red flag. <laughs> Bell's going off. Yeah. I hung up the phone and deleted everything that was on uh, on my computer. I did. I also This person also changed their passwords. They say they have a Mac, so they were unable to get anywhere. 
Oh, um, okay. Right. But sure. they did have TeamViewer installed on your computer uh, huh. because you did that for them. Uh, but it's it's interesting that this is this is a new vector coming in of somebody calling from your cable company. And yeah. then they're going to give you com- some kind of social engineering attack where they want you to log into your bank. Right. So that's not how any of this works. Um, <laughs> you know, T-Mobile does do 5G internet service, home internet service. Yeah. Uh, Comcast does not. They run a wire to your house. Uh, Verizon runs either a wire or fiber optic cable to your house. Um, it- I will add that it is not at all helpful. And uh, I find uh, annoying that Xfinity has branded their latest iteration of their home internet as 10G. Right. Yeah, that is uh, that is not. Because that's not at all confusing no, in the marketplace. No, that's what, that, that was some guy in marketing over right. at Ver, or Comcast. <laughs> right. Doing, like, you know what we'll do? We'll call it 10G. You know, we're going to skip right by 6G, 7, 8, and 9. Right, because those are all actually mobile <laughs> mobile standards. And there is a 6G standard in development right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's... Don't, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. That is irritating. <laughs> well, thanks to Anthony for uh, sending this in. Yes. Uh, we appreciate it. And, of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to share on the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Well, let's jump into our stories here, Joe. Okay. Uh, I've got an interesting one. Uh, this uh, comes from Florida. Uh, I have a story here from WESH2, which is the NBC affiliate in Florida. Uh, article uh, written by Claire Metz, who's a reporter there, and it's titled Florida Principal Who Sent $100,000 to Scammer Posing as Elon Musk Says She Was Groomed. Hmm. So the story here is that we've got a principal of a charter school uh, in Volusia County, Florida. I'm not sure where that is. Me neither. Uh, uh, she resigned after writing a $100,000 check to an internet scammer posing as Elon Musk. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Jan McGee uh, worked at Burns Science and Technology Charter. Dr. Uh, Jan McGee, PhD. Yep, yep. Okay. And she says herself, she says, I'm a very smart lady, well-educated. I fell for a scam. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said she was taken in by a fake Elon Musk, someone who was posing as him online, and... One of the things that this story describes that is interesting here is that um, she was kind of predisposed to fall for an Elon Musk scam because this is a a STEM charter school. Right. Like, so this is a science and technology school. And evidently she had been trying to get – she had been trying to engage with Elon Musk to take part in – the educational process at this school. And I don't know if that meant to get money from them, to to just get his participation, to get his uh, endorsement. Right. But uh, she's a fan of the things that he does. And so she had been attempting to to get a hold of him. And presto changeo, somebody comes uh, who claims to be him and takes her down a path. Now, I wonder, I wonder if this is coincidence or not. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point um, because uh, w- there's a couple articles uh, I've read about this as I was doing the research here, and I, I can't recall if it's in this specific one, but uh, someone made the point that she had been making some of this outreach publicly, and uh. perhaps someone had seen 
that, in, in sort of in an aspirational kind of way. Right. And perhaps it's possible that someone had seen that and said, aha, here's, here's our chance. Could also just be coincidence. Hard, hard to say. Um, the good news, if there is any, is that um, because she was only authorized to write checks up to $50,000 out of the school account, mm-hmm. uh, when she wrote a check for $100,000, one of her assistants noticed that, flagged it, stopped the check, and so the school was not actually out okay, good. of the money. Um, however, it did uh, lead to her resignation. Um, sounds like there was some That's... other business going on here. Maybe uh, she didn't get along with some of her coworkers and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Okay. But this was the catalyst for her yeah. uh, resigning. I don't think—I'm not sure that's—that's that's unfortunate. Yeah. I, and I don't know what the, what the interpersonal relationships are. Maybe that was too big to overcome. But yeah. it's unfortunate that a social engineering scam, an effective social engineering scam, was enough to get— this person to resign. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing I just want to emphasize that's a part of this story, what you highlighted is that this is a highly educated person, mm-hmm. right? I mean, working at a, this is the leader of a science and technology yep. school yep. and was led down this path. We have had stories of other PhDs being scammed on this uh, show a, a few times. Yeah. And it's, it's, it happens. Everybody likes to think, well, I'm not falling for that because I'm not dumb. It's not about how smart or dumb you are. Mm-hmm. It's about what your emotional state is and how, what you're already thinking about. Yeah. And when the opportunity strikes these, or arises, these scammers strike. And they're going to hit just at the right time. And that's what happened here. Dr. McGee just so happened to be in the right psych- psychological state to believe that who she was talking to was Elon Musk. Yeah. Because she had gone through and tried to reach out to him. Now, if somebody pretending to be Elon Musk contacted you or me, he'd be like, yeah, right. I'll believe it when a free Tesla shows up in my house. <laughs> right, right, right. Keep <laughs> commuting to work by rocket ship. Right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I... I um, but, but, but you know what? I, I think that's a really good point, Joe, but... That doesn't mean that there isn't somebody who we would fall for, right? Oh, no. Somebody that, right. like, there's got to be, I'm just trying to think, like, who would I be so enamored with? Who am I such a fanboy of or some I admire so much, re- admire, respect, w- worship, whatever, that if someone from their office reached out to me, would I fall for it hook, line, and sinker? Yeah, I can think um, of someone right now that I would, I would, uh, I would fall for. But I'm not going to say that person's name. <laughs> I'm just saying for me, it's uh, I'm lucky Jim Henson is dead. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, all right. Well, we will have a link to this story in the show notes. Uh, definitely worth a look there. Uh, Joe, what do you have for us this week? Dave, my story comes from Max Heinemeyer, who is the chief product officer at Darktrace. And the title of his, he has a blog post called Tackling the Soft Underbelly of Cybersecurity Email Compromise. Uh, There's hyphenated there after cybersecurity and email compromise. Hmm. Uh, So he's talking about, uh, early on in the article, he's talking about a survey they ran, a market survey. Uh, One of the things they found in this market survey was that 70% of respondents say they have seen an increase in phishing attacks in the past six months, Hmm. which is significant. Yeah. Uh, Further down in the article, he mentions that a few weeks ago, Darktrace had some research that they published that said they have not seen an increase in the number of attacks, but they've seen an, a change in the composition of the attacks. Hmm. 
And there, the, what he's saying here is there has been a 135% increase in novel social engineering attacks in January and February of this year, 2023. Hmm, what does that mean? Well, that's an excellent question. What does that mean? <laughs> it means that they are different from previous social engineering attacks or from the other social engineering attacks that are coming at the same time. Oh. They are, the content is longer. It's more accurately worded. It's got better punctuation. There aren't any grammar mistakes in it. Can you guess why? I I I have an I have a notion, but I'm going to yes. let you tell us it's what it is. It's because they think that, and I'm almost positive this is right. That attackers are using generative AI in order to generate these phishing emails. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Which you can go to Chat GPT and say, write a phishing email. Convince it. We've seen we had stories on that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think all of my stories for the past like month have just been AI stories. <laughs> so uh, this is another one. Right. These phishing attacks are getting much better, uh, and these attackers are shifting their attention away from the flimsy, uh, you know, click on this link, you need reset password, right, right to uh, having ChatGPT write them a phishing email that says, click on this pa- uh, link to reset your password, mm-hmm. and it's a credential harvesting site. Mm-hmm. Um, the question about this is, what do we do about this? Yeah, the, the social engineering, the, the effectiveness of these attacks, if I can tailor these kind of attacks, in the past, we've talked about the difference between phishing and spear phishing uh, and how I can spend more time writing a spear phishing email and it will be much more effective. Yeah. Well, now we're seeing people writing phishing emails using AI that are going to be more effective as well. So they're going to hit larger portions in a spear phishing email, probably the same amount of contact as they would have with a regular phishing email, but it's going to be a much higher quality phishing email in terms of um, in terms of writing. And that means it's going to have a much higher quality or much higher rate of success. Yeah. I'm going to predict, here's one of my predictions, Dave, <laughs> that we're going to find that the, uh, the, the AI-generated phishing emails are at least 10 times as effective as one that a human writes. Hmm. Okay. That's my that's my prediction. The thing that, that strikes me here also is that they can iterate so much more quickly. Right. Right? Be- and, and also, it will assist with the research. In other words, if I'm trying to go after a particular CEO at a company mm-hmm. with business email compromise, I can have ChatGPT start off by saying, write me a, a friendly letter to this CEO. Right. And if that person has a pretty high profile online— It'll be able to draw in things that it knows about that person, right? And and off you go. So all that research time would can be saved uh, by using a tool like this. Yep, absolutely. So the question becomes, what do we do? Yeah. Uh, and Max has one comment about that. Uh, he says, "Do not lay it on the employees because." Giving the employees the responsibility is essentially going to create a trust gap. Uh, in everything that they do, and they're going to spend all of their time, and they're going to be relentlessly suspicious mm-hmm. of every single email that comes in, mm. and that's going to slow them down. Also, uh, you know, if you have a punitive culture there for things that happen badly, you know, for, for malfeasance in the company, whatever, yeah, uh, then that's going to also cause people to stop and slow down and take everything very seriously, right? The, the rest of the article then goes on to talk about Dark Trace's products, which 
as a blog post on the company's website, you would expect, right? But, <laughs> sure. Right. Um, right. But here's the problem with to which to which we have the solution. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they do sell AI powered tools that that uh, that monitor your emails and, and watch things like that. Sure. Uh, but my observations are this: one, first and foremost, email is still terrible. And I've been saying that now for a number of years. It's the only service on the internet that anybody can put something into your inbox or mm-hmm. into, in, you know, just give you something and you will accept it. That's the only service on the internet that's like that. Yeah. You don't have to have a web page that takes any input from somebody else. You can just give things out all the time. Uh, but email, by its nature, has to receive things, mm-hmm. right? I would like to think of some possible solutions for this. Uh, one of them is just really strict filtering on who you accept messages from. Perhaps there's some way we can do public-private key. Well, there actually is a way already to yeah. do public-private key encryption. Oh, that's so easy, Joe. Right, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 does have, it does have a hurdle. Yes. Um, that, but that's the thing, right? right? I mean, these things are these things are a little tougher to do. Yes, you know? yes. So, I don't know. I, I think from what I see, what I suspect is going to happen is that as the next generation comes up and they're using email less and less, right? Yes. My kids don't use email to communicate with each other. Yours probably don't either. No. No. I'm I've I'm almost walked away from email. I mean it's I use it very sparingly for for things. Mm-hmm. I use it for uh communicating with a very small specific group of people. And then I use it for uh communicating with companies and uh, that I do business with. Right. That's it. Yeah. Everything else is is spam in those emails. I got a, a, a Yahoo inbox with 2,000 messages that I will never read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It is, and it is still the standard for business communications. Right. And that's and, the, and beyond there, dragons be, right? Yes. I and mean, that's, that's the problem. Yeah. I, I don't like email anymore, Dave. <laughs> All right. I first well, got an email address. I loved it. Now I hate it. Oh, we all, oh you remember the, the thrill of I, – I remember the feeling the first time I – Logged into a local bulletin board, you know, back in the old dial-up days. Yes. And, uh, logged into a local bulletin board where, for the uh, youngsters in the audience, it was one at a time could use this thing, right? So if you dialed up and there was a busy signal, that meant someone else was using it and you yep. needed to wait your turn. But the thrill of the first time you got email from someone, it was like, what? That was... <laughs> I, got uh, like, I got mail and it's electronic. That, was, wow. that wasn't like email, though. That was like the bulletin board service mail. Yeah, but I mean, it was still, yes, you are correct. I mean, it was mail, so private mail within the bulletin board itself. So we're not talking about like, you know, today's federated mail and and all that kind of stuff. The the precursor, but still, you know, that was the first, uh, just interacting with other people via computer was novel at the time and exciting. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that blog post in the show notes. Uh, And again, we would love to hear from you. If there's a story you'd like us to cover, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from JP who writes, Hi, Dave and Joe. I got this beauty in my inbox today. Had I not been listening to your show for some time now... I may have fallen for it. Thanks for keeping us informed. Uh, Dave, this is masterful. Do you want to read it? (laughs) Yes, it starts off and it says, 
Dear customer, we're excited to inform you that we will be upgrading our services to better meet your needs. As one of our valued customers, we want to ensure that you have the best possible experience with our company. Our service upgrade will provide you with the following benefits. Improve speed and performance of our services. Enhance security features to protect your data. Additional features and functionalities to improve your user experience. Here are the other details. Amount, $389. Product, anti-threat protection. We understand that change can be difficult, but we are confident that these upgrades will significantly improve your overall satisfaction with our services. Our team has been working hard to ensure a smooth transition and minimal disruption to your service. The upgrade will take place on April 6, 2023, and we expect it to take approximately 12 to 24 hours. During this time, you may experience some temporary service interruptions, but we will work to minimize any downtime. We appreciate your loyalty and trust in our company, and we look forward to continuing to serve you with the best possible services. If you have any questions or concerns regarding this upgrade, please do not hesitate to contact us. Thank you for choosing Nort1. Okay. <laughs> it was so good. It was. <laughs> so this good. This is probably right? written by AI. Yeah. So uh, what we neglected to mention is at the very top of this, there is a logo from Norton. Norton. It says Norton, Norton 360. Yeah. And Norton, the well-known, uh, well, I guess, I mean, the mo- originally known for virus protection, all sorts, Norton utilities. Yeah, Peter right? Norton. Yeah, Peter Norton uh, had a suite of utilities, and these days— um, I guess it's mostly virus protection, that, that sort of thing. But yes. A well-known name. Identity protection as well. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so the last sentence of this says, thank you for choosing NORT1, N-O-R-T dash, the number zero, N-E. Right. And <laughs> why it does that is that that gets it through the spam filter. Yeah. Because the spam filter knows that it's not coming from a Norton address. And mm. the spam filter doesn't see the picture says Norton on it. Right. Uh, you do, the human. Uh, but the spam filter sees uh, the Nort, Nort 1 down at the bottom and goes, well, that's not – that. okay, that's fine. Let it through. Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of uh, trying to elude a spam filter that makes it look a little janky in here. But this whole thing uh, is, is really w- well written. Yeah. And that kind of makes me think that this is AI generated. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Well, again, uh, thank you to JP for sending that in to us. And we would love to hear from you. Send us your catch of the days to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Paul Dant. He Paul is, Dant. He is Senior Director of Cybersecurity Research at Illumio. Here's our conversation. I actually got started when I was around nine years old. My interest in computer games sort of unexpectedly led me into what would be my first lesson in reversing software. I was really fascinated with computer game design, the industry, the business, everything about it. So I wanted to replicate that. I taught myself how to code in basic, and I wrote my first game called Gulliver's Travels. Never read the book. Uh, I'm pretty sure I got the idea from that Ted Danson uh, TV film, Gulliver's Travels. Hmm. Uh, But nevertheless, what I was also really interested in was studying how these game developers were, were using copy protection 
to make sure that people were actually paying for their games. So I pursued the shareware model where I could charge people $5 for a number that they could type in. Made some money, you know, in my fourth grade class. Wasn't really uh, smiled upon to, to run a software enterprise in, in fourth grade. But <laughs> what I also encountered was a, a parent of one of the kids who had bought my game said they found my code in my software and that their kids should get their money back. And then, you know, kind of piled on uh, where people were upset about paying for something that they felt they shouldn't have to pay for. And long story short, understanding that somebody could find my little code in that software was eye-opening for me. And so at nine years old, I really wanted to pursue that. And so I kind of retired from software development and jumped right into software piracy and started learning how to crack games. Once I got into modems and bulletin board systems and all that stuff, I, I got pretty, uh, pretty heavy into, you know, wares and, and distributing, uh, not so much for money, but the barter system, distributing cracked software for cracked software. And then it was really sneakers. I'm sure you're familiar with that film with Robert Redford in sure. uh, the early 90s that kind of got me thinking, you know, all of this stuff that I'm doing at school that I'm kind of getting in trouble for, I could do this as a living. I could actually have people pay me to break into their stuff and then show them how I did it so they can stop other people from doing it. And that's really what set me on the path. So I'll end it there. That's kind of going back in time and, and really how I got to where I am today. Well, let me rewind a little bit back with you. I, I'm curious when you say that you know, one of the parents found some code, what, what exactly was going on there? What was it that had folks upset about what you were up to? Great question. So what it really came down to, I think, it was, as I had mentioned before, this was a game that was written in basic. And my mind was still thinking that people are just interested in seeing a demo, paying me money and playing the game. What I didn't realize is that, you know, it's very easy to hit control C and then type list and see the actual code of, of my game. That was just the nature of it being a game written in basic. And so I think when one of the parents was able to find that without paying for it, that was kind of the justification to say, you know, we want our money back. Like, we didn't need to pay you to play this game. And yeah, that was a, a shift in thinking for me. Absolutely. That's interesting. And, I, you know, it sounds like you and I sort of came up around the same time. And for folks who may not have been around then, you know, a lot of this, we're talking about um, you know, floppy disks and, and maybe even uh, cassettes of, of loading and saving software. But it's fascinating, you know, you're right. Back then, the uh, the early software developers and the folks who were selling that stuff, they would use all kinds of clever copy protection on those disks to try to keep people from copying them, from, from selling those wares. But I feel like every one of us, we had a friend, and it sounds like uh, for your friend group, you were that friend who knew how to get in there and unlock those disks so that everybody could get a copy of that latest hot game. Right, right. It, it kind it, it became a hobby in in a sense, um, but it was also just in my mind. It was also research. You know, it was hacking these games not just to distribute them. Um, and you know, I certainly wasn't thinking about the commercial ramifications back then. Although I probably should have been, but it was really more about understanding how those things worked. And of course, that branched into just the the general idea of reverse engineering software. And what's so interesting and, and why I like to tell stories like this is 
how long ago that was, how rudimentary we might think some of the technology was. You mentioned cassettes and, you know, five and a quarter inch floppy disks. But fast forward to today, and I would venture to say that your average Android application is just as easy to reverse engineer as my game was in the late 80s because certain aspects of what software is and how it works just simply haven't changed. How does that inform the work that you do today? I mean, for me, I think back to that time, and and I really appreciate that those old early computers taught me how to think. They taught me how a computer works and taught me how, as a human, to interact with the machine. I mean, you learned a lot of lessons back then. Are you still using those lessons today? 100%. In fact, that's, uh, that's one of the key things that I love about being at Illumio, I love about the Illumio product, is the focus on what I've known since you know, my early days of hacking was the core issue, and that is this ability for an attacker, once he or she has gained access into a network, can typically move pretty freely. Uh, lateral movement is the, the phrase that we hear describing that quite a bit. But, you know, when I was carrying out these attacks, um, kind of taking over, you know, middle school networks, I grew up in a pretty rural area of Maryland. And so there was not a lot of what I would say computer awareness or computer savviness, primarily among the staff at, at the schools. And so there was just a lot of question, you know, what is that kid Paul actually doing on these computers? And those, those days were what really showed me that getting into one computer alone is typically not going to be enough. And now, especially when you look at the much larger, much more diversified attack surface that we see today on on the internet, it makes a lot of sense that moving past some of these security controls that we've kind of thought of as the, the security controls for a very long time, they can be evaded. And once that attacker has gained access to a single system in that network, typically they're able to move around. And that's how these ransomware attacks that we see unfolding quite a bit these days and have been for years. That's really how they're able to be so successful. Moving silently from system to system, analyzing what's on those systems and finding exactly what would cause the most havoc, whether it's bringing their operations to a halt, releasing confidential sensitive information, whatever the the manner of extorting that money ultimately is, the key to it really is lateral movement. And that's kind of the lesson that I still apply today to answer your, your original question, Dave. When we're talking about that risk, you know, that digital risk, but then also the, the human side of it, that a big part of this these days is social engineering. How do you recommend that people go about balancing how they protect themselves across those two domains? It's a great question, Dave, and not a very easy answer. We, we see the attackers are constantly shifting and adapting, whether it's when we bring in multi-factor authentication to help better secure an account, finding ways to evade or even just utilize that to their benefit. So I think when, when I really look at it, it comes down to an understanding of what these attackers are ultimately looking for. What is the motivation? And it's, in most cases, either your financial accounts information or your username and password. 
So as much as we talk about it, it's still critical to, to be reminded that those are sets of information that absolutely must remain with us, that our bank is not going to be calling us asking, what is your password to your account? That's not going to happen. I still think, you know, we have some work to do in, in getting that awareness really out there. What are your, your recommendations then? You know, when, when you're out and about talking to folks who are looking to better protect themselves, what are your words of wisdom? So if we're talking about individuals, um, you know, it's don't panic. That's the, the first recommendation I, I always make. We see all of these examples of, you know, people who may in some ways be especially vulnerable to a pop-up on their computer or a phone call that says, we're monitoring your system, we're from Microsoft, you have a virus. My first recommendation is explaining that that's just not going to happen in a legitimate scenario. Microsoft is very, very unlikely, if at all possible, going to know that you have a virus on your computer. And, you know, we're still in the age where we have a lot of people utilizing technology that they aren't necessarily that deeply aware of and, and don't have a deep understanding of to even know that, that Microsoft's not going to call them. Microsoft doesn't know they have a virus. So that's one of the first things when it comes to individuals. Now, enterprises, corporations, I think, you know, that's a whole other set of things when we're talking about very differently motivated attackers who are using very different techniques. Joe, what do you think? Uh, Dave, do you know that I know Paul Dant? I, well, and I did not know that. I know that now. How do you know Paul Dant? <laughs> Paul Dant and I used to work together. Really? At Acuvant, yeah. Okay. Uh, in fact, <laughs> when I think of Paul Dant, the first thing I think of is the earthquake that happened in uh, 2011. Yeah. Because I was sitting at my desk uh, <laughs> under what my <laughs> under what my boss, Chris Cullison, called the Widowmaker, which was a network cabinet that was not bolted to the wall oh. when the earthquake happened. And the first time <laughs> I thought one of another one of our coworkers was shaking my desk. So I stood up and looked over my desk to see nobody there. And then Paul came out of his office and goes, was that an earthquake? Wow. <laughs> and then the earthquake, it, it came as a second wave, and I realized I'm standing underneath the Widowmaker. <laughs> so I ran out of my cubicle before I got killed. It didn't fall off the wall. But, well, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> There's my Paul Dant story. <laughs> yeah. I know Paul Dant. I'm, I'm a big fan of Paul Dant. Paul, uh, my job at Acuvant, or Siphon slash Acuvant, was the first hardcore, all cybersecurity job I had. Okay. So... Uh, I learned quite a bit from Paul. Oh, nice. I'm, I'm very interested to find out he got started at the age of nine. Yeah. Uh, and it was the reverse engineering part that got him into it. Somebody had essentially reverse engineered his basic code yeah. or his environment, really. Uh, and it's really an interesting story. My opinion of that would have been, if parents came to me asking for the $5 back, would have been, no, you paid for the license. Actually, did you read the EULA? Because, I mean, you, <laughs> there were no EULAs. No fourth graders writing EULAs, right? No. Uh, so, I mean, but I don't think those people were entitled to their money back. They paid for the software. Right. Um, it was shareware. Uh, Paul is correct about Android apps being very similar to uh, BASIC. You know, BASIC is not a compiled language. It's essentially a very early scripting language. I remember the first thing I learned was BASIC. Yeah, me too. Um, and the first thing I did with it was write a game as well. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. was not a, uh, I don't, 
I got it. It was terrible code all the way through. But what do you expect from a twelve-year-old? <laughs> well, that's okay. Yeah, I mean that's that's what basic is for, right? You know, I mean it's it's to introduce you to it, and it's it's great for that. It is. Yeah. Um, the big point here, uh, one of the big points that Paul touches on, that's a little kind of, it's not explicitly stated, but the general curiosity is what you're looking for in somebody who wants to go into cybersecurity. Mm. They need to have that that curious nature that takes them and goes, well, how does that work? Mm-hmm. I need to know how that works because I'll bet that doesn't work right or doesn't work well or mm-hmm. isn't built well. And, you know, sometimes when I look at, uh, look at the inside of things, I wonder how it works at all. And I, <laughs> I frequently go, I'm amazed this works. Yeah. And when Paul's talking about that process of thinking of, you know, when he, he was talking about reverse engineering and cracking things, uh, once you kind of get that process, once you kind of, um, you, 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 you have it, you can always use it for, for a lot of different things. It's really helpful. One of the key barriers, however, to this process is there are a number of epiphanies that you need to have along the way. Hmm. Uh, and I'll give you a great example. The very first epiphany I had to have when I was essentially learning how to program by reading a book in 1981, sitting in front of an Osborne computer, yeah. uh, which was, I was trying to understand how am I going to get the computer to know that I want to play a game, that I, I want it to produce a game. And it, I, I sat there and thought about it for like two hours and like was racking my brain about it until it dawned on me. You big dummy. The computer doesn't know anything, hmm. right? The computer is waiting, is just following the instructions you give it. You're telling the computer exactly what to do and when to do it. Right. That's what's happening. Yeah. But if 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 you don't have that understanding, and you you say, yeah, right, like as if that's first no, first-hand knowledge to you. But at some point in time, you had to make that realization right. of what happens, of how that works. And everybody who works in IT, works in works in computer science, works in cybersecurity, they all know that. But if you don't ever make that leap, then I don't know. I don't think you'll ever make, uh, you know, make it in the field. I, I just don't, I think you need to have there. And there are a number of those things that need to happen. And there are people that can guide you along the way. Yeah. Um, like one of my favorite things is my daughter, uh, when she started taking programming classes, uh, I told her about the, the, the epiphany story about, you know, the computer. And she said, yes, my instructor was very good at teaching that. He said, the computer is a fast idiot. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <Which> good. <laughs> I said, that is an excellent way to describe it. <laughs> right. So good teachers are imperative, I guess. Yeah. But back to what uh, Paul was saying. Uh, when he starts talking about the current stuff, he, uh, attackers getting into a network and moving around, uh, you know, many times attackers go into a network and they can just freely move about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're also doing this because they've been through the same process and have the same curiosity. Yeah. You know, they they want to find out, you know, they want to make their money, but at the same point in time, they want to see what you've got. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not just there. They're not just there to make money. They're kind of also there because they enjoy what they're doing. What, what does this network look like? I really want to know. Mm-hmm. What are these guys doing? Mm-hmm. Are they going to be able to stop me? Probably not. I'm a pretty advanced hacker. I can get in here. Right. Uh, right. How do they have things organized? How do they have things organized? What, what 
barriers are, am I going to have to get around? Can I get around them? Mm-hmm. These are all uh, almost fun for these guys. Yeah, well, One, in a way, it's a game in itself. Right. Yeah. Uh, I like what Paul says here. Two pieces of advice. Keep in mind their goal. And when I give talks on cybersecurity, I tell people the number one goal is money. Any other goal is just to get to the money, right? (laughs) Right. So they want either your money or they want access to your money Mm -hmm. or they want something that will make you give them money or they want you to route your money. They, They want something, but it's always money. Is the end is the end goal, uh, and every year the 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 Verizon report comes out the VDBR the Verizon Data Breach Report right and every year it says that the vast majority of these crimes are financially motivated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second piece of advice that Paul Paul offers is really good advice, and it's don't panic. <laughs> yes, <laughs> remain calm. <laughs> um, and we talk about that a lot on the show. The goal of these phone calls and emails is to panic you. Mm-hmm. Because when you panic, you don't think clearly. That fires off your amygdala, and the amygdala thinks a lot faster than your 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 upper brain, and it uh, it results in you doing whatever you think you need to do to get out of the situation you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great when you have a uh, a fight or flight, a real fight or flight situation, and your amygdala makes a decision of whether you're going to stand and fight or run. It's perfect. If you're out in the woods and there's a wolf near you. That's that's a good situation to have that ability. <laughs> right. But if you're on the phone with somebody who's scaring the crap out of you because you're gonna they're gonna uh, they're gonna turn your your electric off tomorrow. Yeah. Right. How how are you gonna cook? How, yeah, then oh you got to go and get me a Walmart gift card. Yeah. Okay. 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 I'll do that. Right. Um. It's it's don't panic in these situations. Yeah. Th- that's the goal of these guys' operation is to shut down your your cognitive processes. Uh, it's good to hear from Paul. I, I got to reach out to Paul. We got to get together. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice to know that you two have that connection. And yeah. uh, again, our thanks to Paul for joining us. That's Paul Dant. He is the Senior Director of Cybersecurity Research at Illumio. And we do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.